Welcome to the Scott and Manaz podcast. It's episode 18. We're coming to you live from Beograd or Belgrade, depending on how you pronounce it. It's Serbia. And we just drove in from one of our favorite cities, as listeners of this podcast will know, Sarajevo in Bosnia. And it's getting late, but um, one of the uh, bar owners here was nice enough to sell us a lovely bottle, and we're enjoying it now. But uh, it was an eventful day for you, especially. Um, hello, how are you? Hi, Scott. Good. How are you? Great. You push this over. Um, our, on the way here, I mean, well, the, the key, the sort of key thing that we were doing today was to drive to Srebrenica, which was sort of a halfway point between uh, Sarajevo and here. And today was a very special day, of course. It was uh, Remembrance Day of the genocide there. And uh, you had an opportunity to talk to some special people. Why don't you tell us about it? Yeah, sure. I mean, I was really honored. I went to Srebrenica uh, because of Velma uh, Sarsik. And she invited me because I'm going to interview her about my new book. And she has this wonderful center that is called the Post-Genocide Conflict Center where she brings in youth groups and talks to them about peace building, um, about the future, the present, how they're feeling. She's doing some amazing work. So I went and gave a, I I would say like a workshop uh, with about 50 Youth. They were very not just normal youth, right? Yeah, they were exceptional youth chosen for the program. Got scholarships to come from all over in the Balkans, including the United States, Australia, UK. Very eclectic group, ages from eighteen to thirty. And one of the things I noticed is that um, when they were were listening to you, I think a lot of them who. Uh, you know, it's obviously a, a, a small group of people who were interested interested in this and, and got to be involved with this. They saw you and said to themselves, I think, wow, maybe I can make a career out of this. Well, I mean, that's very kind of you, Scott, but I don't know if they were thinking that. I think what they really kind of resonate or wanted to resonate with is that here I was, and I said this to them, I'm a you know, Muslim woman of color and um, a full professor, um, director of a Holocaust Center, basically the only one in the nation, maybe in the world. And that, you know, why was I in this position? So I took them through a journey in terms of my life and then had them, you know, think about memory and what it means to think about genocide and also the Holocaust. And we, I think... I wanted to empower them in a way where they didn't think peace was something that was passe, um, that it was actually right here with us and all the strides that we've made with peace. So give the listeners a a sort of outline of a a special um, concept you brought up, which was multidimensional memory. It had a lot of them have smoke coming out of their ears, I thought, but it'd be interesting for you to, to spell that out. Yeah, I mean, it's a book that um, Mark Rothberg wrote, and maybe some listeners know about it. It's called Multidimensional M- Memory. 
But what I like about that book is that it really talks about how we think about narrative and whose memory we are focusing on and how we focus in our own memory, but somebody else, perhaps in the same vicinity, the same age, the same gender, um, is thinking about another memory, meaning we're constructed with how we think of who we are identity-wise, ethnicity, religion, gender, race, etc. And I was trying to get them to think about how narratives can coexist, even though there can be opposing voices, and how that's challenging. Because if we can't do that, then we really cannot move towards reconciliation or peace building. I've seen it happen. I've done it myself, personally. And um, I was trying to empower them and also making them realize that you know, today I was standing in front of them as minority with, you know, a great position and that it's possible in 2021 and it wasn't possible in 1970 or 1975 or 1980. So I think there are strides that we've made in the world and I want younger people to understand that we can do this, do it slowly, but we need their help. You know, the facility there um, was not just uh, you speaking. It was a whole uh, memorial to the genocide. And um, Rui and I took a a walk through there. And um, I think the thing I I took away more than just, you know, the names of the people was the sort of um, fruitlessness of, of the UN's role, the group's from the military groups from the Netherlands, for instance, um, and how powerless they were to stop things. It's a, kind of a sad situation. There's a, there's a control room there where, you know, I, I guess it's kitsch in the sense that they have these computers from the early 90s, and um, it's just a... I don't know if it's intentional, but there's a, sort of a feeling of ineptness. You know, you had these people mm. there protecting the individuals, the Bosnians of, Sereni- of Srebrenica, and still they were they were killed. It's like, you know, imagine if there was a contingent of uh, English forces that were surrounding Dachau, you know, and they just failed to do anything. It, it's, it's kind of the same thing. It's, it's just very strange uh, in terms of their failures. And it comes through in the photos and the, you know, pictures of um, Clinton and leaders of that time yeah I mean and you know (coughs) this is my point I mean politics is not (sighs) politicians the UN and everyone I mean of course you know there's a role that they have to play in the world but I want to get to the people before that because if there wasn't this ethnic cleansing or as we called you know Bosnian Muslim genocide We wouldn't care about the UN. We wouldn't care about the US coming in after the massacre of so many thousands of Bosnians. Um, So I, you know, I have a different view and yeah, I see this UN thing and I know a lot about the Holocaust and how people didn't intervene and it's terrible, it's horrible. But how do you get people who are doing the perpetration, who are 
saying, oh, you know, I'm following orders, or yes, I don't like Bosnians, or I don't like Muslims, or I don't like Jews, or I don't like Christians, to get to the point where we don't need UN and political forces. Unfortunately, yeah, in some cases we do, but I, I still am idealistic enough that I feel that if I can change human minds and get out of the propaganda, the myth, the conspiracies about other people. Um, and, and, you know, some of it has has been done, even during the well, Holocaust. I don't want to put you on the spot here, but, I mean, it, you know, it's often said that the Americans came in too late, but I guess the question uh, average American would be, well, where were the French? Where were the Turks, for instance? I mean, uh, in terms of intervention, why is it always the participant who's furthest away, an ocean away, dealing with this, especially in the early 90s. Well, I mean, I think that has to do with the UN and who was in the table and intervention forces. So there's a convention that happens and there's seven partners. And I think at that time, the US was one, Turkey was not one. Um, and it gives you the access to go in. But also, I mean, the US has policed the world um, and intervened um, saying that they want to create democracy. Um, and why shouldn't the United States take the burden? I mean, this is something the United States should think about. You know, United States has their own burden of African-American slavery and genocide, as well as Native American genocide. You know, maybe they can start talking about that and say, okay, you know what? We, we did all this shit. We want to go and intervene in other places um, because we are the most powerful country. Well, then... Uh from there, you know, we gave our goodbyes and <laughs> had a nice long <laughs> drive through Hill Crazy Drive Hillendale, um, and we here here we are in, in Belgrade, and it seems like a very happy place, very prosperous. What are your first impressions? Yeah, I mean, Serbia is doing quite well economically, and it is a much larger city than Sarajevo or Zagreb. Um, it's really vibrant, very, um, like all ages around, there are beautiful restaurants, beautiful views, beautiful sky, gorgeous, uh, shopping areas. A lot of brutalist architecture. A lot of, um, post -Soviet yeah. Post-Soviet stuff. Post-Soviet stuff. Um. Which can be, you know. I don't know. I've only been here like a day, not even a day. Not even a day, yeah. Um. I'm hoping is, it, is there um, value in the nostalgia for Soviet-era architecture? I, I, you know, I don't know. You, you need to talk to people like in Romania and other places that, you know, kind of have nostalgia for communism, um, not for the economy, I think, but because of the thinking and education and things like that. Um, I think communism, fascism all these ideologies sort of have a weird kind of new frame of thinking where, you know, we can all be one and we can all be nationalistic. So I think it's transferred from these categories back from like the 1940s, or I, I would start with 1930s, 40s, 50s, um, 70s, and now we're in 2021. Well, here's something we were talking about offline earlier today. And, and for people who are listening to this podcast 10 or 15 years from now you know you can judge to see if we were on the money or not but uh, the question was 
you know, with the strength of capitalism now, seeming like it's, you know, taking over the world and ever so powerful, I think we both agreed that capitalism was on the rocks. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think capitalism as an ideology, I mean, it's become an ideology, which is interesting. So capitalism is a way of economy, but capitalism comes with its setbacks, right? And I think capitalism has become sort of this ideology of like the haves and the have-nots or I would say people who are really reified or homogeneity, they're they're into the homogeneity of who they are versus the people who are diverse or want diversity or heterogeneity um, and they want to break that capital mold. Some of it is very theoretical right now. Um, some of it is very real economically. But I think now capitalism has become this ideology that people are fighting. And they're not fighting necessarily about the, the premises of economy, but they're fighting about the ideology of capitalism. And that's a very kind of subtle different move that's going on and perhaps you know someone should write about that not me i don't have time but well i mean here's something for you to think about i mean i've got a lot of thoughts on capitalism but i want to ask you this and take your time to think about it um when you look at capitalism today through the lens of someone who studies genocide how does it affect that your study of genocide has it affect your perspective on capitalism as it exists today in 2021 um I think uh, I think genocide is still <laughs> happening. I mean, it's not like we're studying it in the past. Right. Um I mean, I work on the Uyghurs as you know and Rohingya genocide and uh, I think genocide is seen as a black and white issue and it's not. But I mean, here we're sitting here and we just went to Severnica and it was a tw- it tomorrow is the 26th anniversary that's 26 years Scott Um, Mm -hmm. and I think that genocide studies or Holocaust studies can really 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 make us understand what happens in a person's mind when they are constructed by propaganda myths conspiracy theories and that's why it's valuable. And we can make some parallels today with many different parts of the world. Well, I'd have to say, I'd have to give my two cents. You know, I, I think that our people's obsession with the 1%, which is like the ultimate sort of um, manifestation of conspiracy theories, it's just, I think the 1% see, feel, and have data about capitalism being on the rocks and they're human and they react in a human way which is to shore up their defenses I guess you could say you know in their case you know billions of dollars and you know fortresses in Hawaii and, and I don't know God knows what that maybe their own satellite in space but um, it's interesting I think something about the study of genocide is something that I think the 1% should spend time with and oh, yeah. un- understanding the value of human life. Yeah, right. absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, 
one of the things I said today in, in my lecture or workshop, whatever you want to call it, is that, you know, the best tool we have, and I made a joke, is not technology. Although technology is a fantastic tool. I really believe in it. But if you don't have critical thinking, you can't even use the technology we have in a smart way. And what do I mean by critical thinking? Critical thinking is about thinking about oneself as one makes statements, makes ethical decisions, uh, chooses a partner, uh, buys something, uh, chooses to live somewhere, uh, chooses some friends. Th that's just uh, the very beginning of critical thinking. And then you start to see things in the world that are not just in your habitat, but outside of your habitat. And you start to say, well, you know what, that's not fair. I, d I don't know why that person is so racist or, you know, they're um, anti-poverty or yeah. what, whatever it is. And I, and, and I think one of the things that we all lack in globally today is that aspect. You know, I'm a Muslim and I know as a Muslim coming from, you know, Mughal Empire, especially in Ottomans and Safayids, we were brutal. We weren't always kind. We were great too. You know, we, 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 we did a lot of things for the world. Um, and I think we need to be culpable and responsible for that and not idealize who we are identi identity-wise. It doesn't mean that you can't be proud to be a Muslim or to be a Bosnian or to be, you know, uh, an Israeli or to be a Palestinian. But it's how you are proud. What does that mean to you? And that's the critical point of thinking. Speaking of critical, w before we left Sarajevo, I was watching Russia Today. And you know, it's a media outlet. With Wait, you were watching? Oh, Russian News, okay. RT, Russia Today. I was like, you were watching Russia? Wow. You know, watching Russia <laughs> News. And <coughs> they were, you know, of course, like all media outlets, they have their own political bent, and they were railing against um, critical race theory in America, you know, and basically um, framing critical race theory as something that's going to lead to the destruction of American society you know and um, as we know critical race theory in a classroom can be uh, used negatively if not understood properly but it was fascinating to me because you know, if you think about the power structures in Russia, you know, anytime groups that are oppressed have a philosophy to bring them out of depression, out of oppression, you know, oligarchs like Putin is against it because God knows what will start next. First thing, one thing, it, one day, you know, that, uh, uh, African-American people will feel empowered and the next thing you know uh, workers in in uh, Russia will feel empowered you know it's it's an interesting class issue uh, to see them pushing so hard against it you know uh, empowerment is not always about money and that's where people have it wrong and I think yeah. that that maybe should be a class in itself is that you know as you know, Scott, today a, a few students came up to me yeah. and wanted to ask me questions about 
Well, I mean, it was sweet. They were like, oh, this is this amazing lecture. You got me thinking. I want to do human rights. I want to ask about hijab, questions about Islam and everything. It was just it was just wonderful for me because, you know, I just kind of walked in and did my thing. And they're from all over. I don't know them. They have no, you know, pre-reading, nothing. They don't really know anything about me. Right. And, you know, I, I said to all of them standing there in a group, I said, look, you can do all of these things like I have done you won't make money but it doesn't matter at the end of the day it doesn't matter because you will have fulfilled yourself and actually you know uh, as a matter of fact for an academic I do pretty okay and I have a luxurious job luxurious job I don't make tons of money luxurious lifestyle though but I have a I'm here. I'm traveling. I'm meeting people. I am passionate about what I'm doing. I don't feel like I'm oppressed or stuck somewhere. And every day I meet someone new. And every day I change my perspective. And this this is what it's about. It doesn't mean just because I have a PhD and I've been teaching for 25 years that I'm done. It means right. that I keep growing. I keep moving. I keep moving. And that's what a critical thinking is about and I hope I'm doing that still and I'm not always I uh, you know doing it right I admit that but but the most important thing is you have passion if you have passion for something you will make it happen you will make a living you will have a paycheck I guarantee that even to the artists that I know that are struggling they always made it because they stuck to something speaking of uh, something you have a passion for Tomorrow is a big day in sports. <laughs> and this is, I, I have to admit, you know. It's a big we, day for me too. When we yeah. when we take these trips, you know, I'm in charge of the logistics. So I, I try my best to, you know, put ourselves in a situation where we can create a lot of memories. So I really, when I, month, I mean, weeks and weeks and weeks ago, actually, I said to, you know, as I said, look. We need to take a trip to um, Belgrade, and we need to be there on the 11th of July. And she said, why? I said, well, chances are good. This is during the French Open. This is wa- it's a while back. The chances are good that Djokovic will be in the final. Yay. And wouldn't it be fun to watch him win in his hometown of Belgrade? No, oh, well, I mean, he just happens exactly to be my favorite player for right. years. So, this so is I'm like, yes, do tomorrow. I will rearrange my whole schedule around this one. And then on top of that, and this is something that's, if Peter Skirland's out there listening, we will be, you know, sp- just torn about. It'll be that Euro Cup final. Well, Euro Cup 2020, they still call it that because it's been delayed by COVID, but it's going to be England versus Italy. Italia, uh, Italia. You know. It's it's a it's a tough one. It's Look, my two I have my things. allegiances to Italy. Yeah, I, I mean it's yeah. easy for you to say. Well, it is. But easy. As a Premier League fan, it's tough. Yeah, so but it's gonna be fun. Big, yeah, big fun day Looking tomorrow. Looking forward, and hey, you know I can still think about sports while I think about genocide, and that's a luxury, and I admit it. And I am so fortunate that I was invited 
to be one of the guest lecturers at this wonderful youth school and uh, Sebrenica. It's a, such an honor for me, and I, I'm completely humbled to even share a couple hours of what I do and and how I see peace building. And I hope, I hope to God, always, inshallah, that the students that were there and I give them the message that if they're if they are about peace. There is no fear. Forget the politics. Uh, for me, especially with the Israel-Palestinian conflict, it's been heart-wrenching. But I've kept the line of peace, always. And maybe people will say that's a cop-out, but you know what? It's the hardest thing to do. Thank you. Well, on that note, we're going to sign off. I just want to say that uh, you know we've only been here for a few hours, but we love you already, Belgrade. We love you, Serbia, and um, thanks for having us. <laughs> Talk to you later. Bye.